This is Alex Pearson. Mr. Polyev might choose to undermine our democracy by amplifying conspiracy theories. He might decide to run away from journalists when they ask him tough questions. That's how he brands himself, and that's his choice. But when he says that Canada is broken, that's where we draw the line. This is Canada. Let's kick things off because I think it's one thing for a politician to say Canada's broken. And uh, when it comes to Pierre Balievre, he actually says Canada feels broken. But now it's Canadians saying that. Some new polling by Leger for the National Post on their front page blazing 67% asked. Feel like everything is broken right now. We're talking two-thirds of this country, which is not a small number. But when you kind of dig into the numbers, it's who feels this way that I think tells the story. Because it's not just a bunch of angry old white guys driving this, although they do play a big factor. But when you parse into the numbers, it's women who feel things are going the wrong direction at 70% versus 64% over men. That is not a good number for the Trudeau government. And when you look at those under 55, the number goes up to 72% who feel Things are broken. And sure, the anger's rooted in the Western provinces, uh, predictably, but it has very much spread right across this country with half of all Canadians feeling rather angry about how this country is being managed. And they're, you know, they feel that there's a detachment between what the Trudeau government is focused on versus what Canadians, what we are most worried about. And what people are most worried about is cost of living. 68% say it's keeping them up at night, as does health care at 59%. So when you look into the numbers, it's that people don't feel this government is actually doing anything about the big issues that keep people awake at night other than maybe offering, you know, a hollow promise. Like, we've got your back. And in politics, perception is everything. And when a large part of the population starts to get cynical and jaded to what a politician says versus the reality in our lives, it's very hard to turn our frowns upside down. It is really hard to to turn that momentum away. And this is the anger that Pierre Polyevra has tapped into and what the Trudeau government is desperately trying to push back on as their support slides into a new territory that after seven years at the helm, you know, they're not used to this. And they can no longer pass it off onto anyone else. But putting the numbers aside, what is it that Canadians feel is broken? Because I think there's a fairly long list, whether it's big or small, that you can kind of parse through. Whether it's trying to get a timely doctor appointment assuming you have a doctor, to get a diagnosis or surgery before you die. Or for a long time, it was trying to get a passport on time to make the flight that ultimately would get canceled or lose your your baggage. Maybe it's a, a military so depleted of resources that we actually can't get new recruits, let alone actually defend us from very real threats. I mean, does anyone actually think we could have taken that balloon out of the sky if we had to? I mean, we can't. Heck, we can't even stop China from setting up police stations or interfering with our elections. So, no. Our immigration system has a two and a half million person backlog, and now it's being cleared by rubber stamping anyone 
even those rejected in the past, or we just allow them to cheat the system and, and walk across altogether at Roxham Road. We've seen violent crime increase with lighter punishments. We've got high inflation with record food bank use. So we work harder, make less, and then we watch billions go down the drain in waste or corruption. We're lectured on what's appropriate to say, think, and consume, and then labeled hateful if any of it's questioned or the country maligned as colonial by the Prime Minister himself, who allows our history to be erased instead of defending what makes us Canada. I think a lot of people see the true North strong and free, you know, once the envy of the world is now very divided within, and on the outside looking in, our allies are just fed up with our failures and inaction on anything serious, so they're saying, move out of our way. So there are dozens of examples why Canadians may feel Canada is broken or not. And I haven't even included scandals or ethical lapses or even the weaponization of COVID and the vaccines. But is it the country that's broken or the government that runs it? Because they're two different things. And I don't think it's an accident that in the last few weeks, you know, we have seen a flurry of announcements and walkbacks by this government because they have to, they have to stem the bleeding and they have to clean their agenda of anything that is outstanding if they want to go back to the polls and take us to a vote. You know, so they've made sure to say, now you can get your passport. I still haven't gotten mine, but it's only been a week. You know, but we don't know if you can still get a flight out for March break. That's not a guarantee because unless they've hired pilots in the last couple of weeks, that could be a problem but they've reversed course on a very sloppy gun legislation piece that uh, backfired on them badly, so they had to turn their way around on that. They have an assisted death program killing too many of the wrong people, and of course the government was warned uh, that this would happen, so they've now had to pause that. So pundits and apologists, you know, they cast this off to partisan politics, but the thing about it is, it's a perception in how people feel, and anger is not something that can just be turned off or cured with a talking point because at the root of it is a frustration or a feeling that no one's listening or that people are powerless to change it. And the tougher things get, and this government has finally admitted we are in for some tough times, uh, talk is cheap. So if they can only say that they've got our backs and not show it in action that they actually do have a plan, that they can actually make a business case for this country, then they're not going to be able to convince Canadians that the country isn't working. Whether or not it's Trudeau's fault doesn't matter. And tomorrow is the first time that the Prime Minister meets with the Premiers for a health deal. This is a, a, a meeting that the Premier's been begging for for four years. So there's a lot on the line for the prime minister who uh, is trying to, to stave off this slide down the polls. And he has to be seen paying attention to something that has been ignored for far too long. So he needs a win. There's a lot at stake. So it's more than just a soundbite. And for those saying, well, Polly Amber's got to put solutions on the table. Sure he does. But not yet. Why would he put his whole game book out for everyone to see? so that his competition or the Trudeau government can pick it apart. They won't do that. He'll lay out some things, but not everything.
you just kind of get out of the way on these things and let the uh, government in charge or government of the day get themselves out of the mess of their own making. So I thought that was interesting polling because oftentimes it's um, just cast off as partisan. But no, I think there's a general feeling that things aren't necessarily working anymore. I had a caller last week, Ruth. She didn't really mince words. She doesn't recognize the country anymore. And I think a lot of people feel like that. Like, who are we? What are we doing? What's our purpose? Alex Pearson. Weekdays at 9. We are 640 Toronto. Weekend's over. We are into a fresh new week. And let's uh, bat some of the headlines around with a voice you will remember for her time at Toronto City Hall. Anna Bailau, former Toronto City Councilor and Deputy Mayor, joining us. And, of course, you'll hear her on this station. Good to have you, Anna. Hi, Alex. Good morning. Oh, there's lots Good to, to go here. through. Um, let, me, let me pick up on something that we were talking about uh, before with Ben Spur, or I was. And this has uh, to do with an agenda item um, on opening warming centres for 24-7 for the rest of the winter. And so I guess this conversation has been going on behind... Uh, closed doors about, you know, maybe we should open these things at the beginning of winter because apparently they've just discovered winter at City Hall um, because we just don't have enough places in the shelter system. And so maybe you can take me through because how long has this, was this discussed when you were there? Yes, it it, it was. And uh, what what the issue is, is that I think um, by doing that, we're not really dealing with the root causes of these issues because you know, what, what is happening is the shelter has become, for many people, a de facto housing. Shelter is supposed to be something that, you know, you're going through a crisis, something happened, you're there for a few months. Unfortunately, because of the housing situation that we have in this city, and not only housing, to be honest with you, the mental health crisis that we have, the opioid crisis that we have, we have people that end up staying in our shelter systems for two years, three years. And so they're using it as a de facto. Then we have another group, unfortunately, over the next, last few years, which is a very large number of refugees that are not being properly supported when they arrive in this country that end up in our shelter system. And these are not, like, we should not be using our shelter system to uh, uh, welcome our refugees. We should not be using our shelter systems as a de facto housing. We need supportive housing. And if we were to deal with those issues, we would have space in the sh- in the system that we have. Well, the let, problem let, is that we haven't, Alex. Well, we haven't, but I mean, one of the big problems that no one really talks about is the fact that we have about 2,500 um, people who have crossed at Roxham Road and they've come in as refugees. That's not what, they, you know, th- that becomes then a burden on a system that we, we don't have enough spaces to begin with. And so then it it pushes out local need. And the federal government, they're not going to shut that that border entry. They made that clear. But then they should have to pay for this. So where is the demand for federal funding? I mean, as, as it, Quebec has done. Um, you exactly. Know, and we've been, we've been asking for that. And every year we actually, uh, the city goes to the federal government and says, you know, this is, this is your bill, yeah. right? But it has to stop being that way. We need to create a system that, you know, I think... Torontonians are very welcoming to this, right? Many people came to this country as, as refugees, as immigrants, and so on. And so we want to make sure that we're open to uh, to refugees and that they succeed in our country, right? We want to see them integrated, get a job, get on with, with their lives and their families and so on. 
And this is not the way to do it. So instead of us giving them the bill at the end of the year and saying, by the way, you know, when are you going to create a solution? And here's, you know, $70 million that you need to pay us for all this expenses that we've had. Why can we create a proper system that in turn would actually free up almost 3000 spaces in our system so we can deal with the homeless issues as well. And the same thing goes for the supportive system, right? For the supportive housing. We do have people that, you know, we have people sometimes that, you know, you lose your job, you go through a really tough time and you end up in a shelter. And those, you know, within a few months, usually are in and out, you're able to secure something else. There's other ones that need a little bit more than a roof over their head. It's a healthcare issue as well. And and that supportive housing needs to be created. And you know what? But, you, but, but, but Anna, Alex, let, we both know. I mean, it's a lot of talk. We're so way behind. Even the federal government, they, they were supposed to build it last year, and they haven't done is? it. Yeah. Let me give you some numbers. You know how much it costs to have somebody in our in our shelter system? When it's I like nine grand, it's yeah, six thousand dollars to have somebody in the supportive housing is two thousand dollars. Like. Governments, get your act together. Yeah. It's actually, it's more humane and it's cheaper for everybody. So yeah. it's, uh, you know, it, it obviously because of the situation that we have, you know, the warming centers need to be there. I mean, can you imagine being out on the street on Friday? It was, it was I went out for a few minutes. It, it was, it was a killer. Yeah. And of course we need to accommodate this, but to say, oh, we're going to have these warming centers now permanent. I think we need to say, wait a minute, we need, we need a real a solution, yeah, right? Well, yeah, like, we're we're just going to have people sleeping on chairs? That's the solution? That's not the solution. No, it's not. But, you know, uh, until we get a new funding uh, formula and or some real leadership on this, and maybe John in his legacy term can do that. But again, maybe he's just got to embarrass the prime minister. Either you're going to let them in or shut the, the border, but you can't keep shipping them from Quebec to Toronto and dumping it on us with uh, supports and or you know, uh, making it work. It's just that story that no one talks about. I want to flip over to healthcare because obviously it's a very big story uh, this week because it took, what, four years of begging the premiers of, of the prime minister to meet with them. Um, so they're going to come out with some kind of framework. I mean, we'll, we'll get an idea of what's coming. They want billions more in spending. But I think the polling that we got from uh, Ipsos for Global News shows very interesting uh, numbers on this seismic shift of attitudes towards private and public health care delivery. And when you look at this number, they find, uh, Daryl Bricko finds 59% support a mix of private public care, 60% were in favor of private care for those who can afford it, and, you know, 85%, he says, and uh, we'll play a clip from him, that uh, this is the first time he's seen such a huge shift for a drastic change. Automatically, people read that into uh, read into that it would be checkbook or or credit card type healthcare, American style healthcare, and they would be repulsed. Now, what we're seeing is because people are so concerned about the type of services that would be available to them today, they're willing to look at some options. And a buyout, we buyout, we can now have a third rail conversation in 2023 about healthcare, and it's uh, surprising to you. Um. It is and it isn't. Uh, I, I think that the majority of Canadians are much more open to new ways and including some of the private system. But I think that what they've been hearing, and for us here in Ontario, I think the Ontario government has really, really pushed that idea that nobody's going to need to have to use a credit card. Like, yes, we are creating... Uh, we're, we're doing more in the private sector, but you're not going to be able to use your credit card. And I think... 
people are really buying into that idea and being and and that has opened up their minds to their system because a lot of people are saying, yeah, I go to my family doctor, I don't pay with my credit card. And they have their own office, they run their own small business, basically. And I think that because the situation is bad, you know, the system Dire. is broken. <laughs> like we finally yeah. realize that we can't deny. Exactly. Yeah. People are saying, you know what? I need to open my mind. And I think that's what it is. I still have a hard time thinking that people would be totally okay with like complete private. Here's my credit card. But I think that the way the government of Ontario has been talking to people, that people have really warmed up to this idea that, you know, if, if it means that I can have access to my health care, if it means then let, let the government, let, let the bureaucrats worried about the bills, get me my health card. Yeah. yeah, my health care. I think that's where people are. And to be honest with you, I was very surprised even as well to to hear the federal government being open to that. And I think it yeah. is that realization to say, you know, we need to do things a bit differently. I think there needs to be checks and balances. I think there's that that's what that's the conversation now. But I think this is a really important moment for our country that people are coming together. Uh, it has been in the books for, for, for some time, but now everybody's coming together. Um, and saying, okay, this is broken. We need to look at different ways to to, to deliver this 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 service. That that Canadians deeply care about it. Like the Canadians deeply care about healthcare and the way that it is delivered. But now I think the frustration is 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 overtaking that that feeling of pride and saying, okay, like. Yeah, pe- people actually want to live. I mean, I think that's what we've got. Like, if I'm gonna, if I'm gonna have to rely on the system, just give me a fighting chance to live and not wait on a, a waiting list for uh, two and a half years. Oh, well, nonetheless, well, we'll wait and see for tomorrow. But uh, I think you raise a good point. Uh, the prime minister has flip flopped on this, and he will get heat for it. But that is his new position. Uh, I'm out of time, Anna. But at the end yeah, of the day, ahead. Alex. Yeah. At the end of the day, if if people see an, a, a difference and an impact, and it is that they continue to go to whatever service and they give their health care and they get it, they will not know what it was said. They will just care about what was done. Yep. Yeah, totally, totally agree. Nonetheless, stay tuned. Uh, Appreciate it. We'll chat again. Thank you. Alex Pearson, weekdays at 9. We are 640 Toronto. This is one of those what-would-you-do stories. And it involves the theft of a 2021 Nissan Rogue stolen while a young man, Rami uh, Tamani, was at an Oakville Good Life meeting up with his mom and then realized his mom's keys and wallet had been taken. And then he realized right away, uh-oh, I think dad's car has been stolen. The car that has all his work documents in it that dad needs. So he did what anyone would do in that situation. You call 911 and then you're told, well, it'll take us a few hours to respond. So in that moment, Rami Tamani uh, realizing now with his mom that her bank account's being drained and credit cards used, decided, well, I'll, I'll deal with this on my own. Took matters into his own hand and then started plotting his way to every bank machine that was uh, being used, gas station and convenience store. And despite 911 warning him not to, Track down his car. He joins us now, Rami Tamani, uh, on the show. Thanks so much. Yeah, no problem. How are you doing? I've given the Coles Notes version. And so kind of take me back as to what prompted you once the police said, yeah, we'll get there in a few hours. What prompted you to act? Um, 
I was just like, I seen online that there's so many vehicles have been stolen and have been sent overseas uh, to be resold. And I just thought the vehicle was already on the highway and gone. So I just wanted to make sure that it wasn't. So to your point, in 2022, just for some stats, uh, 1,380 vehicles were stolen across the uh, Halton region in Toronto. More than 8,000 reported uh, stolen in 2022. So the numbers are up about 5,600 cars in 2021. So you're right. There are a lot of cars being stolen. A lot of them do end up at a port and shipped out uh, overseas. At what point, or was there ever a point, Rami, where you thought, this is not a good idea? No, I never thought that this was a good idea because I I never approached uh, the vehicle itself. I know a lot of people were mistaken and thought I, I went I went towards the vehicle and approached the suspect, but I never did. I saw the car and I contacted the cops and waited. Okay, so take me back. So you, you and your mom start seeing that her credit cards are being used, uh, the bank cards being used. And so did you just basically go station to station? No. So um, there was this place called Oakville Market. So, so at first I got a Petro Canada. Um, I got reported at Petro Canada. And I went to a random Petro Canada, did not find it. And then I got, she got a notification saying Oakville Market, which was a convenience store that I knew about. And I headed over there because I knew there was a Petro Canada next to there too. So I, right when I was getting there, which is the upper middle and eight line, I seen um, the vehicle parked right behind the Petro Canada with uh, the headlights on. So you managed to track down the car in, I guess, about an hour. Is that the timeline? Uh, so it was around, I think I got the car around 1020. So I think like an hour and a half to an hour and 45 minutes. That's pretty good. It's pretty good. Nonetheless, you get there, and I, I take it the driver had fled. Um, were you surprised? Sorry, sorry. Can you say that again? I, I take it the driver had fled and just abandoned the car where you ultimately found it. But were you surprised uh, that you found it and, and the state it was in? So, no, the driver was actually in the vehicle. That's why I was surprised, because the vehicle was running. They were still in the vehicle, and she was actually having uh, she was having her Harveys, and there was... Uh, <laughs> That your mother paid for? Sorry. So, yeah, so they, they use my mother's card for Harvey's. Wow. And it's interesting, though, that it's a woman, eh? I, I was fully expecting that you were going to come upon uh, male suspects, but it's a woman. What'd she say? Um, so I never I never actually approached her. I never spoke to her. But I, uh, I, I did uh, go up with the police, and she just uh, gave me kind of like a look. Uh, and that's all. I only had some eye contact with her, and that's all I had. It's it's amazing, um, but nonetheless, I guess they tucked themselves away out of uh, out of the line of sight and thought, well, we'll just eat here before we continue on. Any apologies? No, and uh, I believe there was a second suspect because there was a second meal in the car, and uh, she came all the way from London, Ontario. Wow. Uh, nonetheless, I mean, upon finding it, I guess because it was your dad's vehicle, um, he managed somehow to get all his stuff back. Correct. Yes, he got everything back. That meaning documents, work files, things that uh, are pertinent to him and probably not the uh, the suspects at large. Um, you know, you had been told at one point by 911, don't, don't do this. I think, you know, the, the term they use is either vigilante justice or, you know, just it's not worth it, it's the car. Would you do this again? Yes, I would completely do this again. Why? Because... Uh, 
it doesn't seem like uh, they were going to find it. Uh, the car seemed like they were grabbing the meal and they were headed somewhere else to go spend more money. And for you, was it about your dad's car or was it like what drove you to kind of take such risks? Because it is risky. I mean, you're, you're out at night. You don't know who you're going to come upon. Um, I took the risk because my dad had his, his business in there. So I know how much it means to him and I know he does most of the business on paper. Mm-hmm. Therefore, that's why I went uh, and did it. And my mom also had her wallet in there. But, you know, wallets can be, uh, can be the cards can be locked and all that. So, so mainly uh, my dad's business. So uh, what did the cops say to you after the fact? Well, one of them came up to me. He's like, um, they were they were actually pretty nice. One of them came up to me and told me, uh, uh, "You should uh, you should join the police force." He's like he's like you should you should be working with us. He's just joking around. Yeah, I think that's a hint hint. Either be a cop or don't play one, but you can't do that. Uh, but uh, but to your point, I mean, a lot of people are losing their cars, and if they can't get the cops, um, you know, help, I think a lot of people look at it and say, "Well, this is my only vehicle, or I've got things in there. I've got to try to get it." Um, oh, yeah. So no regrets. And 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 is Dad going to lend you his car again? Okay. Is your dad going to lend his car again? Uh, to my mom? Uh, <laughs> yes, I think so. <laughs> there you go. Uh, it went too well for him. Yeah, well, I'm glad to see you got it back. Glad to see uh, you're safe. Uh, we read the headline and thought, boy, that's a, a risk that uh, not too many would take, but um, you uh, have yeah, a, a career. Yeah, it's also, I was also there because uh, I went with my buddy too. I didn't mention it, but my buddy was with me in the car. He was just there, so it, it was a little better. So you had numbers on your side. Yeah, so I had, it was just me and one other guy. There you go. Well, I guess um, you're going to probably see the accused in court at some point on this. We'll find out what the rest of the story is. I hope that was a good Harvey's meal and they enjoy it because they're not going to be eating that well where they're going. Nonetheless, Rami, appreciate your time. Okay, thank you so much. That's uh, Rami uh, Tamani joining us and, uh, yeah, decided to take things into his own hand. Uh, you know, they, 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 they tell you in cops, don't do that. Uh, don't do it. Because things can, uh, obviously, crap happens, and it can happen really, really quickly. I do find it uh, interesting that she decided to buy Harvey's, and, um, you know, mom pays that, and no problem. But it could have been much different, so that's why they say don't do that. But on the flip side, if you can't rely on a police response, and they don't have the resources to respond to stolen cars, that's how many there are. There are literally every day hundreds of cars getting stolen in Toronto and in Brampton all across the GTA. They don't have time to respond. So I think a lot of people are looking at it and going, well, I'll do this. i got to take matters in my own hand. I'm I'm very impressed that he was able to kind of track this – this car from place to place and had the temerity to go uh, uh, check it out. Nonetheless, success on that story, but uh, I'm not advising anyone do that because it could turn out really dangerously.